Good evening, everyone, and welcome to School Psyched Podcast, Episode 5. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about anxiety tonight. We have a guest. Uh, my name is Rachel. I'm uh, an NCSP right now working in the state of Texas. I'm going to turn it over to Anna. Hi, I'm Anna, school psychologist working in New York State and special education population. And Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca. I am a school psychologist working at a private school in Connecticut. Um, and I'm really happy to have our guest tonight. His name is Dr. Eric Schleifer. Uh, check him out on his face his newly launched Facebook page, and from there you can get to his blog. And um, that's one of the ways I follow Eric. He has a really um, interesting and funny, relatable blog that I think you guys will like. And he's going to talk to us today about his um, experiences in private practice uh, in New Jersey and Connecticut and anxiety. Eric. <laughs> How to participate if you oh, want to participate. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I wanted to tell you, I was supposed to tell you how to participate. Um, I posted on our Facebook page, both of our Facebook pages, the School Psych Podcast page, um, uh, the Google Hangout um, link. So you can comment right on the Facebook page, comment or ask a question, and I will be checking both Facebook pages to look for them. So anytime you have a thought or an idea to share, please, please comment. On Twitter, you can also comment using the hashtag, because I'll search by hashtag, um, psychedpodcast. So please feel free to share your ideas, experiences, questions. We want to hear it all. And Eric um, will have, and Eric will be able to answer questions as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. So without further ado, unless we have some technical difficulties, but I see him. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we don't hear you, though. Yeah, okay, got it. All right. There we go. Welcome. Hi, hi, hi. You want to so, start off you. by... Um... You to do this. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about myself as it pertains to anxiety, not me feeling anxious right now, but just anxiety generally. Um, I got my uh, doctorate uh, from a clinical psych program at Adelphi University. It's called uh, the Derner Institute. And while I was there, the program was largely uh, psychodynamic in its orientation. Um, and this means that much of the focus of the treatment methods that they taught had to do with identifying and understanding underlying conflicts uh, through an exploration of past history. So essentially looking at how patterns in our early lives uh, forms the way that we interact and think about the world. So the treatment is based in helping patients to recognize patterns and resolve conflicts based on this, this recognition. So um, of late there's been a big focus uh, on how early experiences in childhood shape the way that children regulate their emotions and how this affects many of the aspects of life and functioning. Um, many clinical practitioners these days use uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to help with mental health symptoms and diagnoses like ADHD, uh, anxiety, and depression. Now CBT focuses on current symptoms and straightforward strategies to alleviate symptoms. So it's kind of focused on the now. Um, and often this works for many patients. Um, but what I found with working with children and with teens and their families is that parents and kids want to understand why 
they're thinking and feeling the way that they do so that when a fifth grader is saying what's wrong with me or why am I like this it's it's really important in terms of personal growth and self-esteem to have an answer for them so looking at patterns and how they relate to the world is important for this so I'm hoping today we could do this with a very broad uh, symptom like anxiety try to understand what its roots are why it happens and happens so frequently, and then what parents, clinicians, school psychologists, and educators can do to alleviate it. Oh. Um, so, uh, Becca, when you were doing the promos for this, um, I had given you a link. It was on a study uh, for stress in America, and the survey found a whole bunch of things about you know the teens that they um, that they uh, asked questions to, and they found that 30% of the teens reported feeling sad or depressed because of stress, and 30%, 31% felt overwhelmed. Another 36% said that they stress makes them tired, and 20, 23% said that they'd skip meals because of it. So, but the bottom line in this, which was really interesting to me, was that the teens overall uh, reported that their stress level was 5.8 on a 10-point scale, which doesn't seem like that much, but um, this was compared with only 5.1 of what what the adults were reporting. So teens were saying that they were more stressed out than adults are. So uh, in my own private practice, I'm seeing a sharp increase in the number of psychosomatic symptoms among kids fourth grade and up. So lots of headaches and stomach aches kids are coming in young kids. Um, and also there's been uh, big increases in school refusal cases. Kids just, you know, uh, you know, simply opting out. They don't want to go to school. Question, um, question yeah, there. go ahead. Do you find that that could be real, related to, I know a hot topic now in education is the standardized testing and high stakes testing and things like that that's going on as young as, you know, third grade where if you don't pass the test, you don't go on to the next grade level, that type of thing. So do you think that there's a connection there where, you know, um, you said that you're seeing an increase. Is that kind of... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but certainly I think, uh, you know, I in my training, uh, I was working for a place called the Educational Records Bureau. I don't know if you guys have that, if it's a national thing. I know it's in New York, and um, they do a lot of the testing for placements in um, private schools in the city, or, or you know, most of the schools in, the, in New York City. And um, I'd have, uh, I think I was testing third graders for fourth grade admission into a lot of these uh, school programs. And these kids were completely stressed out, you know, about it. Uh, actually, and the, the kids, as they got older, uh, I saw a lot more anxiety from the seventh graders. You know, they they, they just, this feeling like, uh, you know, I think as they, you know, the younger, the, the whole testing uh, culture, um, you know, is all leading up towards this uh, push towards college. And I think that that, I, I mean, I'm hearing kids, you know, kids come in, sixth grade, fifth grade, and they're talking about college, you know, and that they have to keep their grades up. So I don't know, you know, if it's just the standardized testing. I think, you know, it definitely is that. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, it's very hard to, um, it's it's very hard to to go into situations where kids know, okay, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer and that's it, you know, and, and they're being taught sort of around that. And if they're not picking that those those things up right away, I'm I'm sure that that's very anxiety provoking for them. So I, I I would say that I think homework is another huge issue here as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, 
these uh, these symptoms in terms of the headaches and the stomachaches and the school refusal, these are sort of straightforward. Uh, what I think of is, you know, most people would think of as straightforward anxiety related kind of things, you know. Um, and but I, I, I'm of the opinion that most of the child disorder, childhood disorders that we're seeing have roots in, in anxiety. So symptoms uh, of these diagnoses are actually ways in which kids cope with or defend against anxiety and fear of loss. So the big diagnoses for kids these days, ADHD, uh, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or oppositional defiant disorder, pediatric bipolar disorder, and depression. So I see these disorders as largely stemming from ways in which kids attempt to discharge anxiety through movement or distraction or defiant behavior or tantrums. Um, so I kind of think about it as like if you imagine that the trunk of the tree is anxiety and then you have all of these branches uh, are the symptoms that stem from the anxiety uh, and they're the ways that kids defend or cope against feeling anxious or feeling lost and then you have sort of little groupings of those symptoms for each of the diagnoses that you know that I just mentioned um, yeah I think you know just in terms of anxiety we're hardwired to experience anxiety as a safeguard against personal injuries so it keeps us safe so imagine if you you guys are all kind of spread out uh, you know all over all over the place so imagine that if the next 20 minutes in your town everyone was free of any and all anxiety so there's, there's nobody is experiencing anxiety in the you know, what that would be like not good. maybe a lot of car accidents yeah. <laughs> I mean maybe some people would be having fun I'm sure that that would be the case but there would be a lot of uh, there'd be a lot of accidents there'd be a lot of injury okay. um, so you know so anxiety keeps us safe and we all have it um, and we we all feel anxiety, and, it, and I think in its most extreme form, anxiety protect, protects against the loss of life and personal injury, and it's there so that we can remember when and where we've been hurt, and again can hopefully avoid it next time. But there are a lot of ways that the fear of loss can come up for for kids. So um, you know, just getting back to Rachel, what you were saying, like the loss of getting good grades, or not being smart, or not getting you know not doing well on those tests. Uh, the loss around not being good at sports or the loss of not making or keeping friends or losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend, um, the, all these fears of loss, they generate anxiety. Um, so uh, I, I, I came across this quote. I don't know where it's in my head from something, but I don't know what it was. It says, as basically somebody said, people will do almost anything to avoid feeling anxious. And so I really believe that um, this that basically we try to protect ourselves um, from anxiety, from feeling anxiety, and from loss. And so we all adopt strategies for dealing with anxiety and the fear of loss. Now, kids are kind of new to coping, the coping thing, and so many of their strategies are not really effective. Uh, and to be fair, they they also don't uh, have as many opportunities to make their own life choices like adults do. Um, something makes us anxious as adults and we just tend to build our lives away from it. So, you know, this is a good example of we're all kind of taking uh, the opportunity to do this uh, podcast, but it all makes it, it makes us anxious. 
You know, so we're kind of stepping out of our comfort zone to do this kind of thing. But a lot of people don't do that. You know, they 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 and 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 they have we so we have the luxury of either choosing to do something like this or not. Whereas kids don't. You know, they they have to go to school. They you know they don't get to choose the school that they're at. They don't get to choose the teachers that they have or the kids that they're in the class with. Uh, you know, if we we took a class as an adult. And we walked in and we hated the teacher. We could just say, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, let's just walk yeah. out of it. Okay. That's interesting, Eric. And I, um, I wonder if um, the reason that we adults without anxiety are willing to be vulnerable to face an anxious situation is because we measure the risk and we say it's worth the risk. And kid, so how would we get a child then who has maybe test anxiety or performance anxiety to say, to, to also believe that, that it's worth trying and it's uh, worth the risk. How, how can we convince them of that? Maybe they'd be less anxious if we did. Yeah, um, that actually reminds me of, there's a, there's a bunch of research that's out <laughs> right now um, on, the, uh, on grit. Uh, I, I, I have a thing here, and I don't know how, I, I kind of forget how to show it on my screen. Um, but it's uh, uh, Angela Duckworth is the woman's name. She did a uh, a um, a TED talk. Oh yeah, she's um, awesome. On, on grit, and you know, to me, that's like you know, that's one of these things. It's you know, I see a lot with uh, with kids. Um, what I think of as um, you know, flexibility or inflexibility. I've been doing a lot of talking about that in my blog, um, and that kids that are not so flexible you know, really aren't able, to, they're not willing to take chances like that. They, they're they're really kind of entrenched. And ing I, I think it's a, I mean, I actually think that, um, you know, it's a genetic biological predisposition that kids are kind of born, some kids are sort of born inflexible, where they, you know, and my daughter's one of them. And that's, you know, that's what I'm, <laughs> a lot of the stuff that I'm writing about in the blog is about how she, um, you know, is dealing with, uh, the losses that she faces each day, and and that it's it's very difficult for her to try new things or 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 you know go out on a limb, uh, you know whether it's food uh, or you know doing a new activity or trying a new sport or whatever it is that th those things are hard, uh, really hard for her. Um, so uh, I was you know just back to this idea around the diagnoses. I, I just wanted to give you a couple of. Um, sort of the diagnoses that I've been seeing and how um, the and the presence of anxiety is sort of the underpinning of, of, of a lot of this stuff. So take attention deficit disorder, which is, you know, uh, is prevalent, as, you know, uh, omnipresent with, with kids these days. So it's been found, and you've probably all had the experience that when you're anxious or really anxious, you don't do your best thinking. Um, you know, concentration and focus is seriously impaired for, for many people when they're anxious. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of blanking out, you know, when you're anxious and then it just gets rolling. <laughs> I'm hoping that doesn't happen here. That's, at any point. that's reminding me of, I know I've seen kind of uh, a chart before, um, I'm forgetting where, but it, it was kind of an optimal performance curve where, you know, a little bit of anxiety, it's not going <clears> to <throat> assist your motivation level. If you're totally not anxious, then you're going to sit around and maybe not find better yourself. And you yeah. increase the anxiety, you increase the motivation, increase the performance until you kind of peak out, and then performance kind of declines um, once levels of anxiety get and stress get 
too much to handle, and then you you see that decline. So yeah, yeah, and that and so you know uh, the more anxious, the more impaired, basically. So uh, you know my feeling is that uh, the focus and attention impairments, at least partially, uh, you know. They, in ADD, they actually stem from anxiety. So kids diagnosed with ADD will tell me that they have no trouble concentrating on the things that they like to be doing uh, or are good at. Um, there were subjects in school or the ones that they dislike or they dislike a teacher are the subjects that they struggle most with focus and attention. I don't know if you guys are seeing that as well in the um, but it seems like that's, that's the case a lot. I have parents will say to me, oh, you know, he could sit for hour, you know, hours uh, playing video games. He has got perfect attention with that. I don't know if that's exactly the same because it's a very stimulating environment. But, um, but you know, so a boy sitting in, uh, you know, is sitting in a class where the material that's being taught, he's not that interested or he, you know, he's struggling a little with understanding it. And it's challenging for him, and then the anxiety starts to build. And so the strategy there is rather than feel the anxiety and kind of work his way through it, which is what grit would be, you know, to, to kind of meet these challenges and, and be able to kind of regulate himself, the strategy that he's employing there is basically tuning out, you know, is a way of shifting his focus away from the thing that's making him anxious uh, onto something else in the room. Now, the hyperactive piece of ADHD uh, I feel is the body's way of discharging this excess anxiety. So you, you've seen people, you know, when we're anxious, we pace, uh, we bite our nails, bounce your leg up and down a lot. Um, this is the body's way of discharging anxiety. So, um, you know, in these cases, uh, you know, you hear a lot about kids fidgeting or tapping their pencil or, you know, and that's the way of trying to kind of distract themselves and move move away with their bodies you know, away from the, the things that are making them anxious. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say, uh, you know, discharge of anxiety in the extreme, this is really an in the inability to tolerate the discomfort of anxiety. So in the more, more extreme discharges are actually attempts by kids to give the anxiety to somebody else. So we were talking about this a little, a little bit before we, uh, we started today. So it's like, the, I think that the sentiment or almost the thought is, you know, I don't know if it's a conscious thought, but it's like, and I can't handle this, so here, you take it kind of thing. So, um, you know, more, more extreme, uh, you know, are these external, uh, these external disorders, uh, oppositional defiant disorder or pediatric bipolar disorder, so, uh, which is, you know, a lot of tantrums, very up and down kind of behavior. And the oppositional defiant disorder, which is most easily explained as a defiance of authority or, and rules. So I see kids with this disorder as experiencing anxiety and in order to not feel it their defense is to get angry or to cause chaos <laughs> you know just to to to, to act out uh, and they will often experience feeling out of control from anxiety and in order to get back the feeling of control they basically challenge other people so um, just an example of this from uh, from a case that that I a boy that I worked with I think he came to me when I was uh, when he was in sixth grade, I guess, and he had been given a diagnosis in third grade for ADHD, uh, and he was being medicated for it because of <laughs> problems focusing and sitting still in school. He was uh, pencil tapping and talking out loud. Um, so he had also been given 
and an ODD and pediatric bipolar disorder diagnosis by several psychiatrists he had seen before coming to me. Um, so his mother brought him in because he was having huge tantrums at home with lots of challenging, defiant behavior. Um, they'd get into these big fights, and he, she would often say things like, she feels like she has no control in the, in the house. Um, and interestingly, at the same time, she also stated that he had a high degree of anxiety at night. He couldn't sleep uh, without her spending at least an hour in bed with him, rubbing his back, and, and basically just soothing him. Um, so he'd often talk to her about his fears um, that that she would die or that his parents would get divorced or um, you know and most of the anxiety was around losing losing her you know so in in our sessions with me he you know and at school he was a tough guy he was constantly challenging uh, you know he'd come in he threatened to break things damaging property uh, opening drawers he wasn't supposed to uh, shooting rubber bands at me you know all things that made me feel anxious um, you know and and, and we'd also go through, he'd ask me to tell him about scare, the scariest movies I'd seen, and then he'd try to one-up me. Um, so he was trying to say to me, or what he was showing to me in the rest of the world was, I'm not afraid of anything. That was his defense. It's like, I'm not afraid of anything. I can handle anything. Um, you know, that he's a tough guy. Uh, and do you one find day, that, sorry. Go ahead. Um, do you find that um, that's kind of typical, that maybe they put up this front kind of all throughout the school day, all in public, and then maybe yes. they get home and it's bedtime and it's like, oh, they just kind of fall apart because they spent all day trying to maintain this facade of a god covered. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think it's not even just tough guy, like, I, my daughter does that, you know, she's good girl uh, in school, you know, she's, she is, you know, I've, we, we get these reports from the, from the teachers saying she's a model student, she, you know, does everything she's supposed to, follows all the directions, everything like that, and when she comes home, she's, <laughs> she's not <laughs> that. You know, there's lots of tantrums, there's lots of blow-ups and things like that. So, yes, she's holding it in all day. And I think there's a lot of anxiety there that she just isn't able to deal with. And it comes, you know, it all comes pouring out. So, in this particular case, this kid was tough guy. But, on the, uh, but the opposite, you know, is him, you know, so we had this session where it started pouring rain outside. It got really dark. It was during the summer, one of these storms, and it was a huge lightning storm, and thunder's going, and his mom was uh, out, had gone out to do something, uh, run an errand or something like that. He, as soon as it started, he ran over to the window, and all that facade just dropped off of him, and he was frantic, uh, you know, saying to me, where, where is she? Do you think she, she's okay? We heard a siren. He's like, oh my God, she's in an accident. You know, and this is a young, you know, he was sixth to sixth grade and just really fell apart in that moment until she got back. So, you know, I feel like even though, you know, in school what this kid probably was either presenting looking like an ADHD type of kid or, you know, an oppositional defiant kind of kid. Um, and yet at home he's presenting totally and completely like an anxious, a really overly super anxious kid who can't, you know, regulate, and I would I would add to that the maybe pieces of pediatric bipolar disorder at, at home as well with the tantrums and up and down behavior. He just couldn't regulate himself, so he was kind of using mom as a means to do that, at home anyway. Yeah. Um, that makes for really difficult communication between parents and teachers when those kinds of situations come up, because 
parents are saying my child comes home and he tries to do his homework and but he gets so worked up that he just cries and procrastinates and and the teacher sees him coming to school I didn't do it you know and more with sort of that defiance or an attitude of I didn't care about it so I didn't yeah. do it so yeah it's that's an important I think role for the school psychologist and like for a private psychologist to relate to the school psychologist so that we can talk to teachers and say I know this is how it looks but here's what we see you know here's what's going on you yeah. know and I've seen, I mean, going back to kind of a situation like you were describing with your daughter about, you know, kind of model student at home. I mean, I get lots of referrals that, um, yeah, oh, at home, you know, we see this and this and this, and I'm doing observations and I'm talking with teachers and I can't find any evidence of that going on in the school. So the school kind of is at a standstill with how do we intervene upon something that we don't see? So I think what you're saying here is is maybe if, if we look further and kind of really consider maybe this could be anxiety-based um, and intervening upon that, then maybe we could make some progress. But, yeah, we see that a lot that, you know, the kid is terrible at home and at school they're fine. And oftentimes the, um, the reaction of the school is, oh, well, parents don't know how to manage that child. And parents are... <laughs> Yeah. That's not always the case. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean that's I, that's a, that's one of the reasons why I I'm writing the blog is because I feel like I get that all the time. You know, people just saying, "Oh, well, you're you know you you're a child psychologist. You you must know you know exactly what to do and how to handle it." But my my daughter, you know, like she, she's a model citizen. When she comes home, the homework is is a big. It's a huge issue for us mm -hmm. uh, because she falls apart. Uh, you know, she's in first grade. So, um, you know, and then, you know, our own parental anxiety kind of kicks into overdrive with worrying about what is, you know, if this is first grade, what it's going to be like when she's in in high school, you know, and the, and the workload is, you know, quadruple or whatever. I, I don't even know. It's, you know, eight times, nine times as much. So um, I see... I see a lot of kids. I mean, uh, you know, I know we're in different areas of the country. Um, most of the kids that come in to me, I'd say almost 90% are boys between the ages of 14 and 17. And they, more than anything, are struggling to do their homework. They're just not doing it. Uh, um, and, you know, and a lot of the strife, the things that are going on at home stem out of, the struggle between parents and kids around the homework, around doing it or not doing it. Um, so a lot of times it becomes this, like a, a cornerstone or a touchstone or a, a battleground, not only for the homework but also as a means for kids to um, assert their independence. You know, and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Um, what I think is going on underneath, though, a lot of this is that schools keep putting out more, you know, they, so my daughter's in first grade, right? So she gets, I, I'm not sure exactly how much, but it, it's a, it comes out to about a half hour's worth of homework a night, something like that. And um, I feel like where she's, uh, you know, what, what happens is nobody's ever taught us how to um, help her to sit down and calm down and do her work. Right, and I think that that's the thing that I see with a lot of these kids is that they're not able to do. They're not able to just 
know how what the what are the steps? How do I do? How do I sit down and systematically go through the things that I need to do while also regulating myself, like learning how to calm myself down because you've got a big pile of work and the anxiety starts mounting. Oh my God, how am I going to do this? And then a lot of kids just push it aside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been seeing a lot, um, kind of going back to that homework thing. I mean, I know that there's some research going around now and things going around Facebook about, you know, there's really not a whole lot of research um, to promote learning. And I can say that um, my husband is a teacher and he kind of tried to do away with homework in his classroom and the response he got from parents even was no we want homework you know it's kind of something that's embedded culturally that we yeah, have to I think it work. is <laughs> you know <laughs> absolutely go ahead Becca oh, no I was just gonna add that um, I had uh, read a great book about it was called grading smarter not harder and it was um, about how if schools and, and educators could focus on grading, really focus on grading sort of growth, academic progress and growth instead of behavior, um, it would make a difference in the the it would make a difference in homework. So I think what it wasn't just about homework, but it would make a difference in how kids felt about doing work because what this author was saying was that we often grade behavior. Did you get it done? Check plus. And and he had this whole mathematical um, analysis of how those kinds of grades are really make the behavior disproportionately important. And what we really want to know is how are they learning? Not right. are they doing their you know, not are they doing their work for the sake of work. Right. Now that that's really interesting. Like other day, just speaking, I know you guys um, you know, have been sending me you were sending me questions you know that are obviously school psychologist related questions and how I work you know or how I can work with school psychologists um, just the other day uh, I was talking to some uh, um, a school psychologist in Greenwich uh, Connecticut and um, she was we were we were talking about a boy who is very a, a smart kid um, but again he's not he's not motivated to do any of his work and hasn't really been studying all that much, but he is definitely a bright kid. And um, one of the interventions that that I was talking about with the school psychologist was um, was along these lines of trying to get the teachers, his teachers, to give him homework to lessen the homework. So take math as a really good example of it. Um, rather than giving three, you know, two pages of pro uh, problems, that you give two or three problems that are uh, illustrative of what what the concept was that, that that they want that they taught that day. So if you're only looking at two problems. If they're able to do it, then that says okay that they know they know what they were doing there. They know what was taught, and uh, and we can move on to something else as opposed to you know putting in all this extra work. So because a lot this kid especially looks at the page, he looks at the two or three pages, and he says it's too much. He gets overwhelmed just by it. But if it's two problems. And he understands the concepts, then he can move on, and the teacher can just kind of look at it and say, "Okay, he understands." You know, it's the learning, not the behavior there. And right. uh, I hear that from a lot of students, especially the high school students, saying they recognize when when assignments are just busy work. Um, a lot of them do, especially the smarter ones that have tuned out. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an easy accommodation to you know add to a 504 or an IEP. Is it? Don't, I would imagine the teachers get upset about that, don't they? Isn't that extra work for them or no? <laughs> I mean, for the most part, I found that teachers are pretty accommodating. I mean, they know we live in a, a time of you know differentiated differentiated instruction and making accommodations and and this type of thing. Um, so I think that most teachers are pretty open to modifying things and making accommodations when needed. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just along these lines, I mean, if I, I would just take this a, st a step uh, further just in terms of anxiety and what we're talking about here, you know, some of it I, I absolutely think is school-related and homework-related, um, but uh, I think some of the other things that are going on with anxiety have to do with the amount of information that kids have access to today. And I don't want to say just kids, but also parents. Um, you know, we're at this point in, in the history of the human race. Uh, where we have access to more information than than we we ever have had before, uh, and and much of the information is scary. You know the 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 information that kids have access to today. I mean, just just the news, <laughs> you know, is really awful. You know, just local news. I mean, and if you start to expand out into the world, I, I think that there is that I think a lot of kids experience that, especially boys, just to get back to this tough guy thing that I was talking about before, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of outlets for boys to express themselves, you know, to, to express uh, anxiety, you know, and, and to say, I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling anxious. They, you can't really say that. Um, so I think video games a lot of times take that, especially the violent video games. Uh, you know, for a lot of boys, they... Uh, they can just um, play these games, and it allows them to, uh, you know, feel like they are taking care of business in the world. Like they can, they can, they can go after these these scary situations. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm reading some of the things that you say. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, along these lines, the same thing, you know, uh, I, I think with girls have it much easier with, with anxiety and expressing vulnerability. Um, it's much more acceptable for girls, for teenage girls or younger girls to be able to, um, to be able to express that they're anxious or they're vulnerable. Um, you know, and they, I think that a lot of times there's a lot more comfort there. I mean, you tell me you're all women here <laughs> and you probably work with, you know, are this... Um, is this, uh, you know, is this something that you see as well? I mean, I see girls, you know, they, they, they use physical contact to be able to soothe each other and relate to one another, and I don't see that as much with boys. They're kind of left with this, you know, just tough guy, you know, <laughs> you yeah. know kind of thing. I see that, especially, I think, maybe in middle school, you yeah. know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I, I feel like it's hard um, for boys to even admit that they have worries. Sometimes, yeah. especially you know, like boys that are, you know, maybe not don't have clinical anxiety, but that are stressed out, or they are, you know, sometimes when I see them, they're always fine, everything's great, it's fine, <laughs> you know. But girls are much more likely um, to to tell me. Yeah. Rebecca, we got a couple comments. Yeah, we have a couple of comments. Uh, some people are enjoying um, the discussion. Um, 
I'm wondering, I would love to know from people out there what their own experiences are, whether they're teachers or parents or um, school psychs. Um, how have they experienced childhood anxiety and what do they think about um, especially best ways, what, what do we do to encourage boys to express their worried thoughts or express, is, how do we make it okay for kids in general to um, understand that they can worry and understand that there are steps they can take to moderate it and, and like you said, get, get started. Okay, I'm feeling really anxious about all this homework, but there are strategies I can use and I can, get, I can just get started. How, how do we how do we do that, Eric? <laughs> uh, you know, um, one of the it's it's funny. You know, I think that it's the get the, like you just said, getting started. I, I feel like when I'm uh, one of the things that we have. Well, there's a few things uh, with my daughter. One of the things that my wife and I have discovered, and I, and it's funny talking to a lot of parents. Um, they the tantrum is actually, you know, this discharge, it's a way for kids, you know, with my daughter, she'll, a lot of times, she, you know, we'll say, okay, it's time to do the homework. The first reaction is, ah! you know, she's freaking out, throws herself on the floor, um, and then it's gone. Uh, you know, it lasts for a couple of minutes, and then she, it's almost like she needed to get that out. It's all, And to me, that's, again, that's, that's sort of an expression of loss there. She's saying, like, I I do not want to do this. I want to be doing the other thing that I was doing just before. I don't want to be doing this now. I want to just like enjoy myself for a little bit longer. And once she gets that out, she's really uh, then able to a lot of times say, "Okay, I'm ready to do it." Um, and I, and I feel like what winds up happening is uh, in those in those particular scenarios. Um, once she gets it out, we move on, um, and and she gets it done really quickly. But uh, a lot of times, when I when I hear uh, parents will ask me about it, and they're focusing on the fact that it happens every night, and that's their main concern that you know that it's happening. I almost yeah. say, you know, with some kids, maybe it's 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 a necessity. <laughs> it actually right. has to happen. You know, uh, yeah. I don't know for sure, but certainly my wife and I have we've settled down a lot once we have accepted that. You know, once right. we were able to kind of accept that that was a part of what may happen most nights, it, um, the frequency uh, doesn't necessarily disappear, but the intensity has dropped a lot. You know, it doesn't last as long. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't at all. I was having this conversation with a parent whose um, four-year-old gets really anxious and has tantrums before going to the pediatrician. Um, uh -huh. I, so we were saying, well, maybe you could try, um, maybe the parent could try saying, definitely previewing the whole thing. You know, we're going to go to the pediatrician, you might get a little boo-boo, it's going to hurt for a very short time, we're going to put a band-aid on it, and then we'll go get ice cream or whatever, or go do something fun, we'll, we'll do something else. Um, and then when the child starts the tantrum, sort of accept it, acknowledge that the child is feeling this way. I see that you're really upset, so I'm going to, you know, let you stay here and be upset, and you let me know when you feel a little bit better. You know, something like that. So to give the child not only the opportunity to express this anxiety, but a little space to, to um, regulate it, because I think a lot of times parents, especially in those situations when kids are young, want to fix it right away, and they want to 
explain and, oh, it's going to be okay, don't worry. And then it just kind of accelerates or exacerbates the situation. I agree with that. And I would also say that I think you also need to be careful. I think it's good that we try and make, um, you know, we were talking about some accommodations and things for students to alleviate some of that. But also we don't want um, the anxiety kind of reinforced by letting them escape the task, too, at the same time. Um, You kind of have to be careful with that. I, for example, have had a student that was on homebound instruction due to anxiety levels. And my push was that we really need to get her integrated back into school because this is this is not helping. She's avoiding it, and she's doing well homes, being homeschooled, you know, or being a homebound education. But we're not getting to the root of the problem unless we expose her to to some of that anxiety-provoking situations and in increments and, and build her up to the point where she can come back to school because that would be the ultimate um, goal. But it, it's hard because... You know, she would come in for a little bit, and then the anxiety was too much, and then she would, you know, her parents would say, "Okay, we're going, we're going back to the way it was because things were easy when homebound instruction was going on. We didn't have behavior problems. We didn't have this or that." But you kind of wonder, does that prepare the student for after school? If you know, <coughs> kind of reinforcing that, oh, I'm anxious, so I get to kind of escape and um, avoid in some instances. Absolutely. I, I think that's right. I think that's an, another example of kind of overfixing it. The, the student needs to have kind of the same, if they're going to be, you know, if they're going to grow and progress, they need to have the same responsibilities, but just the accommodations and modifications could just be sort of empathetic ones that slowly scaffold them up to where they should be. So I, I think so too. I, I have... Um, uh, you know, a third grader with ADHD and anxiety who um, was running around and doing something really dangerous, and I had to say to that child, um, you know, if you do that one more time, you're going to have to sit out of group. Um, and so it was a difficult thing to have a consequence, you know, that I knew that the child wouldn't enjoy, but it was also a way of... of of having that child have the same responsibilities and safety rules as everyone else rather than, you know, fix it and hold his hand and or whatever else I would do to modify the situation. I wanted to jump in. I work with um, middle and high school kids with developmental disabilities. So, like, I don't know, what we use, and feel free to give us a thought on this, Eric, is we'll use, like, a social script or a social story to try and explain a situation because a lot of times if anything's unexpected it's going to stress them out you know and they might have a tantrum in class they might be throwing things kicking things they might destroy the whole room in one of these outbursts and you can tell they're anxious but they're not really able to make those connections and like go through like talk therapy um, and so we use like social stories and social scripts you guys have any thoughts or ideas on other strategies you use with kids with varying levels of ability and anxiety I think that the narrative, any kind of narrative, to to me, you know, just to like pack package this this whole thing up in terms of the experience, uh, uh, you know, of homework or you know doing the, it's basically what we're talking about here is like the anxiety that goes with doing the things that they they have to do when, um, you know, and balancing that with doing the things that they want to do. You know, how do you how do you get them to, you know, kind of sit down and attend to something that they really don't, you know, necessarily, that they don't really want to do, and that that's that's anxiety-provoking. So I feel like, 
you know, we we mentioned a couple of things here. One was sort of the script leading into it. You know, uh, the what to expect. Okay, we're gonna, you know, and obviously I've noticed, you know, certainly with my daughters. Uh, around homework is having you know that set time that she kind of knows going into it. Okay, after dinner, this my wife's been really good with, with that. Um, but you know, then along those same lines, you know, we were also talking about this idea of validation, which was what Becca was saying. Of you know that as they're going through, you know, if the if the, if the tantrum is going to happen. Uh, and it happens that there's a validation of their feelings, you know, that, oh, you know, you, you're really anxious right now, you really don't want to do it, you want to be doing something else that's really upsetting to you, etc. And then, you know, I think with that, that, that is probably a lot of what you're talking about is this, um, you know, is the narrative. You get what we're essentially trying to do there is to give them an eternal dialogue, something that they can look at their, they be able to start to reflect on their own behavior and see it and say, okay, I'm having a tantrum right now or I'm upset right now because I got really anxious because I didn't really want to do it because I was doing this other thing or I wanted to watch TV or I wanted to do whatever it was and I got really upset and, and, and now I'm crying because of it. Now, all that, that script is the way that at some point they're going to be able to calm themselves down. You know, that yeah. they'll be able to do it. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that the more that, I mean, what I'm always encouraging parents to do is is constantly talk about internal states, you know, through, through, through stories, whether it's, you know, I, I think what's really effective a lot of times is not focusing necessarily on the child, mm -hmm. um, but sharing stories of your own. You know, of things that you know you that you were feeling anxious. I was feeling anxious about you know such and such today, uh, or stories about you as a kid. Um, I also think that using media uh, is really a great tool to to that. So if you're watching a movie with your kids, or um, you know, uh, any, anything on the internet, any television show, or anything like that, to really get into what's going on internally for the characters is a real good way to to, to do that. I, I agree. I, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because we have um, a, a really good uh, comment from um, someone out there that talks about how um, the the consequences and prevention strategies are, are so different for a child with ODD versus versus just um, anxiety. And it's so important for the outside provider to work really closely with um, us at school in order to, to communicate that to teachers and parents as well. What do you What do you see, Eric, as the main differences in prevention and consequences between the child with ODD and just and anxiety? Well, look, you know, at first, you know, at the outset, I, I think one of the things that I, I guess I'm trying to say with this overall is that a lot of times we focus you know, on the behaviors that we're seeing, yes. uh, you know, and we try to attack those behaviors uh, as much as we can to, to try to limit, you know, so in the classroom, something like ODD is really disruptive, uh, you know, it, 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 you, you, you really have to try to get to the bottom of it and stop it right away, so, you know, of course, limit setting, um, you know, is really important in those, you know, in those particular cases to really be on it. Um, with with setting limits, but I think underneath that the message is still the same. What you're trying to get to is this this underlying um, anxiety, and the way that you're doing that is maybe you know after you know maybe it's not happening in the room in the moment because certainly with kids that are ODD, they're 
they are really defensive against the idea that they're uh, they're really defensive against the idea that they are scared of anything. You're, you're not gonna you're not gonna get you know so 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 sometimes the strategy there is you know you're setting the limits you know and kind of trying to keep order uh, in the classroom, um, but at the same time that the conversations afterwards are still focused on anxiety. You know, so what you're doing is trying to trying to create a space for those kids, for those ODD kids, to begin to see that anxiety happens to everyone. You know, as soon as they can start to see that, then they can start to accept a little bit that maybe, oh, maybe I'm anxious too. You know, maybe, just maybe I'm anxious. And once they start doing that, then they can really address what's going on underneath. And that's when the symptoms, that's when I see symptoms start to abate a lot, is, is when they're getting at that underlying stuff. Does, I, I don't know if I can, uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The tip of the iceberg, the behavior is just is just what we see, and there's so much more underneath, and we don't know until we, you know, work with the kid and and see what's up. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, you know, I feel like you were we've been saying what the interplay between school psychologist and and somebody like me. I feel, I you know, more than anything, I love having the communication. I, I mean, I think that you know that's the and and really. Uh, I, I, Beck and I had a conversation uh, last week or the week before about this idea of, um, you know, ho uh, holding uh, emotions for kids. You know, just being able to hold to to you know create an environment where you're sort of taking a lot of this on for yourself. You know, that you're holding the hope for them that they're going to get better, or holding the hope for them that they're not a bad kid. You know that that even though they have some of these behaviors, or you know that there's nothing really wrong with them, that they're just going through a rough time. You know, all of those things are, are I think, are are the pathway to kids ultimately, you know, getting better and feeling good about themselves. And I think that what I a lot of times the best relationships, the best working relationships that I have with schools with people in school is when we're able to share that those experience together so you know even if like sometimes it's just it's a really tough case and we're working with a family that that's difficult and that we can kind of commiserate over that oh it's you know it's been a real struggle and it's hard I mean to me that that, that kind of stuff is invaluable um, because I think it gives both it gives us strength to then go back and be our best selves with the family and with the kids yeah. um, you know and really see the kids as individuals and not just their diagnosis or you know, and or their behavior. Yeah, uh, Rachel and, and I were talking about um, a, a week ago or so that it is so great when we have when school psychs can have that kind of communication and relationship with the private psych outside. But sometimes, you know, it's difficult. Some of your kind, Eric, are not are not so open to that kind of collaboration. So it's difficult. I wish you would spread the word and and let um, others know that it, it, it's so helpful. It's helpful for the child in the school. Yeah, I think it was Anna. Did you ask the question before Was it about um, whether uh, – I'm now I'm blanking on what it was. Um, I think it was. Rachel mentioned like IEP counseling and outside provider counseling. Is that what you're thinking of? Uh, yeah, I, th I, I thought it was just more general. It was like something about – um, God, uh, about just, hmm, I lost it. <laughs> I, I lost it. I have a 
question that just reminded me. I can look at my phone and see what the what the question was, but. Um, let me let me hit you. I know we'll. I'll be real quick because we're kind of getting short on time. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I I had, did have some questions about as far as like counseling as a related service in the school system. We kind oh, of yes, that, that's what okay. a different lens than a clinical psych. Um, I went to a training and on goal writing and and present level writing and things like that, and they gave us a case study of you know this kid cuts and does this and you know puts their head down at the desk and so write a goal based on this you know write a goal and a lot of the uh, of the psychs in the training said oh let's focus on the cutting because that's that's kind of important um, but the trainer said no you really wouldn't be focusing a goal on the cutting that's not educationally relevant you would be focusing on putting the student putting their head on the desk and not engaging you can work on the cutting through kind of some other means and tackle that anxiety but we work on what is most educationally relevant and if the cutting's going on at home or not in the classroom then maybe that shouldn't be a focus of an IEP goal for counseling as a related service and a lot of people are like oh wow um, but I think that parents think that school sites have a more clinical background than what we do or that you know we're focusing on that clinical component and sometimes you know that's not how the law is written and sometimes I think there's a miscommunication between school psychs and clinical psychs and private practice psychs who may be on the outside think that we're not addressing things appropriately but we just have a different scope through which we practice um, no, so I just I, to see, you I, know what Sorry, I agree. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't think that, that you know, even for me, a, a treatment goal, you know, with the cutting, I, I'm always looking at stuff like that as, uh, you know, substance use, cutting, anything like that. Those are secondary issues. You know, the, the, the primary issue is usually how the kid feels about himself or herself. You know, uh, you know, and with the case in, in you know in terms of schools, yeah, I think the question that I that I wanted that I was trying to remember was whether or not you felt like it was beneficial to have uh, school psychologists working therapeutically with with the child in school or seeing them for therapy in school and also having somebody like me outside of school. And my answer is absolutely. Like I I feel like uh, the more you know, and obviously. I, I think that what we're talking about is just looking at school as as a stressful environment, right? That that's you know that that you're and what you're trying to do is basically while they're in school to alleviate some of that anxiety so that they're able to focus, you know, get back to the work and do it. So if that means that for a couple minutes a day they come into you and they can kind of just check, you know check out, uh, you know, and just, or unload, or whatever it is, or just be, you know, feel safe for a minute. Um, you know, to me, that's, like, I think that's more beneficial than anything else. So, you know, I say absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're running out of time. We've got to catch The Walking Dead season finale tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I watched that show. You should let it do it. I think it's on Netflix. Catch up. It's really fun. Um, harmless fun. Okay, so um, any final thoughts or comments? Nope. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Eric. That was awesome. And I, very thought-provoking, and I, and I, it gave me a lot of great ideas. And I'm sh I hope you guys feel the same way, and you out there. Thank you for your amazing participation. We got the most participation and comments ever. 
That was awesome, and it really makes our job easier, and it makes the experience more fun for us. So thank you out there who participated. Um, we are not going to meet on the first Sunday of April because it's Easter, but we will be meeting on April 18th next. So see you there, 7 Central, 8 Eastern. I, I want to say the 19th. Is the 19th oh, Sunday? Sunday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just double-checking. All right. We'll post it for sure. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks.